So, as we continue on this morning, though, I want to ask you a question. And it may be one that you say, really? Do you even have to ask that question? But here goes. Do you ever stop and consider our insatiable and growing need for technology? Do you ever stop what you're doing, look around, and think to yourself, look at everyone just using constantly their mobile devices or laptops or whatever it might be? Do you ever just stop and think about that or look at that? And no, this is not a judgment. So if you have your phones out and you're, you know, using your Bibles, that's okay. But over the past year, the need to use technology for many of us has increased, perhaps exponentially. We've had to do a lot of different things as we adjusted to trying to work or do school at home. We began to use the internet and Wi-Fi services in a whole new way, right? Instead of having in-person meetings at work, we now need to telecommute. And we have socially distant meetings via platforms like Zoom or Google Meet or whatever else. Our kids now have spent several hours each day engaging with their teachers and fellow students via some kind of laptop or mobile device. Some are still using that, some are in person, and and whatever works. The company Spectrum, who provides internet, cable, and phone services, reported that they had a 20% increase in monthly data demands from per household from 2019 to 2020. 20% increase in data demands as we all were trying to use data to do different things. And as consumers, we want to receive great service, right? Like, if we have any failure in that, we get a little flustered. For our internet services, we want to have a consistent and strong connection, right? We want, you know, we don't want to have the old, you know, dial-up sound where it takes forever. We want to have that good, strong connection. And if you have the dial-up sound, we'll pray for you, okay? It can be very frustrating when you're trying to do work or you're trying to do school or even just to stream a movie or show and you get the swirling circle, right? If you've got an Apple product, it's that color wheel of death. If you're using something else, it's just that spinning circle. Or you get that message, we can't connect to the internet right now. Please try again later. And we continue to try again later every five seconds for the next hour or or whatever it might be. For some of us, our blood pressure begins to boil at that first indication that we don't have that connection that we need. Now, when the shutdowns first happened last year, I remember trying to have youth group via Zoom. If there's any students in here, you may have tried to attend and, you know, they were mildly successful at times. I would be in one room on a laptop at our home. I'd have my daughter Kaylee, who would be in another room on a device. And then my son Micah would be on still another device in yet another room. Now, as you can imagine, all three of us are now trying to access data and Wi-Fi and the Internet, trying just to go to youth group. And without fail, I would be in the middle of youth group and I would lose connection. Mind you, it wasn't my daughter, it wasn't my son, no, it was me. I lost connection, which is oh so great when you're the leader. 
when you're the leader of the, the, the meeting and, and youth group, you're trying to keep it going, and all of a sudden you see everyone has frozen, and you'd no longer hear anything except for what you might hear from the other two laptops and devices that are going on, and you think, why am I not hearing it? Oh, great, I've frozen. And so the scramble then begins as I try to get reconnected and I try to get logged back in. And hopefully, in the meantime, nothing bad has happened on Zoom, right? Because you don't want anything, you know, whatever, to happen while you're trying to have youth group. Well, even here at church, I constantly need to be able to access the Internet or our computer server so that I can handle the different aspects of my role here. I might need to access an accounting program, or I might need to uh, obtain some files that I need to work on. And so as I come into the office and begin my day, I try to reestablish the connection that I need between my laptop and the computer network. This then allows me to access those programs, and most of the time, it's a simple task. I just click connect, and within a few moments, we're ready to go. That's always the ideal, right? But then when it doesn't, there are times that there's something that blocks my ability to access the Internet. And this could be a variety of reasons, right? It's never just always the same thing. So it could be just that my laptop's being squirrely that day and just, nope, I don't really want to connect. Sometimes it's our Internet provider having their network down or it's having a hiccup. Or maybe our server is doing an update And the list could go on and on and on. All of these things might try to inhibit me being able to connect. But I'm constantly trying to maintain connection. And in the event that the connection is broken, then I'm trying to troubleshoot that issue so that I can then have the connection again. Sometimes it's an easy fix. And other times, well, just look at the lack of hair on my head. Now, It is this idea of maintaining connection that the Apostle John is concerned with as he writes his first epistle. So if you want to turn to 1 John, we're going to start at chapter 2. And by way of just a reminder, at the very beginning of his letter, he tells us that as believers, we have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And John wants to make sure that this fellowship is ongoing that we have that solid, stable connection that is unbroken. That we continually connect with the Father and the Son in what is to be a beautiful and powerful way. So, 1 John chapter 2, he's going to talk about ways that it can break down and what can be done to fix it. So, he's going to start, and we're going to look at one of those things. So, let's read 1 John chapter 2, starting with verse 1. He writes, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And we'll stop there. So after writing about the fellowship that we have as believers and his encouragement to keep walking in the light, John gives a practical and direct reason for saying all that he has just said. If you want to know God and you want to maintain ongoing fellowship with him, don't sin. 
If you want that strong, stable connection, don't sin. Don't practice it. Don't engage in it. In fact, just avoid it. Avoid sin. And in these two verses, I think he's trying to present kind of this balanced view regarding sin. Because when it comes to the idea and the concept of sin, we could follow one of two perspectives on sin. On the one side, we could take what I'll say too lenient a view of sin. And this is one of the false teachings that was beginning to arise in the church at the time of John's writing. And it's something that can be prevalent even now today. That if we are too lenient regarding sin, we can perhaps almost seem to be encouraging or endorsing sin. And we might be saying, it's okay. God has made provision for your sin, so it's okay. You know, if you sin, it's it's all good. God's got it covered. Well, that's true, but that's also a problem, right? Because we're called to walk in the light as he is in the light. We're not supposed to continue to walk in the darkness like we once were. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be changed. We're supposed to walk in his ways. So if we are too lenient in our view, then we just say it's a free-for-all and it's okay. Everything's all, all good. But the other side is that we could take too severe of a perspective of sin as well. And if we go down this path, we could operate under the assumption that a Christian would not be forgiven or restored if he or she happened to fall. Now, think for a moment how catastrophic a narrative that could be. That if we took this too severe realm uh, of thought, we might be in a situation where, okay, I've surrendered my life to Christ, I know that my sins are forgiven, and that I'm following him. That is my earnest desire, and that's the way that I'm going to move forward. However, if I go out and just at some point I lie to my spouse about something, anything, and I recognize, oh, I just sinned. Well, if I operate under this severe perspective of sin, I could live in absolute fear and panic that my new act of sin may not be forgiven at all. And I may not have restored fellowship with God. And some of us here have probably wrestled with those thoughts or doubts at some point. I remember growing up having the thought that, yes, I'm a believer and I'm following Christ, but I sin. And the biggest fear and the biggest worry would be that I didn't confess it in time. And then the rapture happens and then I'm condemned to hell for all of eternity. Okay, so maybe that's a little bit of an extreme view, but that is kind of that severe perspective where we could have that thought process. So John here is trying to find the balance regarding acts of sin in a believer's life. And he starts with the emphatic statement, so that you may not sin. If you want unhindered fellowship with the Father and the Son, do not sin. Those are his instructions. That's his appeal to us. Don't sin. Sin is the biggest barrier, the biggest wedge that separates us from God. It's that thing that allows, or I should say hinders us, from having that ongoing stable connection with the Father. So let's think about this for a minute. 
why is sin such a big deal? Why must I not sin? Well, one reason, maybe this is obvious, is that God hates and condemns sin. Sin is something that he does not like. It represents actions that are done in direct opposition to him and his ways. And we disobey God's holy law, which he has revealed to us. God has set out guidelines and principles for us to follow. And when we don't follow them, we go a different direction. We're going against him rather than going with him. And remember from chapter 1 that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. So when I and when you engage in an act of sin, we are going against his holy, pure, and perfect nature. So because he is holy and righteous, he abhors sinful acts. He hates them. They are going against him and he he doesn't like them. And another reason that's tied in with this first one is that sin in and of itself, by definition, is wrong. It's just It's wrong, and so we know that as believers, sin is not right. So if we look at sin objectively, and we see the results of sin, we should see how ugly and grotesque it actually is. That sin, when we we do that, it causes some serious ramifications. Look at the utter havoc that sin wreaks in our lives and in this world. I talked earlier about a simple lie. Well, in and of itself, we, you know, we might poo-poo it and, and just say, well, it's, it's just a white lie. It doesn't matter. But when we lie, and, or take it this way, if you've ever been lied to, and then you discover that it was a lie, how does that make you feel? Generally, there is a, a level of mistrust now with, between you and that person. Often it needs to be regained. And again, it may be a minor thing and it's not a big deal in the grand scheme of things. But there's this level of mistrust. Like, can I trust what you are saying to me? At worst, you now begin to have a level of mistrust for everyone that I can't trust what anyone says to me. I can't trust what they're going to do. So that's just one ramification. Now think about greed something that we don't necessarily talk about a lot. But with greed, we're always wanting more, right? I want that. I want what they have. Oh, that's really nice and shiny. I want that. And because of greed, we now start to have this idea that I want more. And oftentimes, greed can then cause us to act in sinful ways as well, where we now say, all right, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get what I want. I'm going to lie. I'm going to cheat. I might steal. I might manipulate other people just to get what I want. And now we are causing harm to other people because of what we want. So there's another, you know, sin act that just wreaks havoc. Or think about someone who engages in an adulterous relationship. Think about the damage that is done to marriages and families as a result of someone having an affair. Think about the emotional trauma and bewilderment that occurs as a result for spouses, for kids, perhaps for extended families and friends. 
those ramifications that happen all because of that sinful act. Sin is ugly. U-G-L-Y, ugly. And so we are to avoid it. John is calling us, don't sin. Avoid it at all costs. And a final reason that I'll touch on, and there are many more that we could discuss, is this. Sin will make you feel uncertain of your relationship with God. It often leads us to doubt our standing with him. It often causes us to question, can I even come to the throne? And most of us have likely experienced that when we commit a sin. As believers, we may be walking with the Lord, but then we do something that we shouldn't do. We sin in some way, and when we realize that, we feel the remorse, we feel the guilt and the shame because of our sin. And we have often this sense of condemnation because of it, right? Like, I am worse than pond scum because of what I just did. I, I'm low and I'm not good. I'm not worthy enough to do anything anymore. And then we have a need that we really should go to the Lord to and, and pray about, whatever it is, you know. And because of that sin and because of that ensuing condemnation, we don't feel that we have any right to pray. You feel like, ah, I don't think I can really do this. I don't think that I should be able to go before the Lord and, and pray because of what I just did. How can I now go and, and pray? It feels a little disingenuous, right? A little two-faced, a little hypocritical. And we, we think, I don't know. I don't think I can do this. And unfortunately, I know that I've experienced that feeling many times when I've sinned. It's not a really good feeling. You just feel low. And so this is why John is appealing to us, my little children. This is why I'm writing these things to you, so that you may not sin. Do the work to not sin. Avoid having your connection with God interrupted. Make sure that it stays strong. And so, as a believer, each one of us should be concerned about sin. Our goal, while we remain here on earth, is to be striving not to sin to put off the old self where we walked in darkness and instead to put on the new self where we walk in the light as he is in the light. So that's John's appeal to the believer, to not sin. But even as he writes that, I imagine that he begins to envision, okay, there's a question that people are going to start to raise. Um, John, Mr. Apostle, sir, I have a question for you. Um, what happens if I do sin? Um, is there any hope for me? Is there any way that I can be forgiven and I can have my fellowship with God restored even when I sin? Is that possible? And so in response to those envisioned questions, John replies, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And all I can say initially is praise God for that. Amen? If we do sin, the provision has already been made for our sin. John tells us about a blessed and glorious certainty that we have if we sin. My sin, your sin, is still covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
And because we have already determined in our lives to follow in the way of Jesus, we have an advocate on our behalf. Now, if we sin, we can be certain that Jesus acts as our advocate with the Father. And an advocate is someone who represents another person. The term advocate is often used in the realm of the courts. Even in those ancient times, it had to do a lot with being in a court and and having some type of uh, case that was going on. And an advocate would be someone who stands before the court and presents the case of someone else. They're not the ones that are on trial. They're not even the ones that are necessarily in the dispute. But they are the ones that are acting on behalf of someone else. They're either coming forward and and speaking on their behalf or presenting uh, ideas and, and, and facts. And he might not voluntarily step in on a personal level. Or no, he might voluntarily step in and on a personal level urge the judge to decide in favor of the other individual. Well, John tells us that Jesus Christ the righteous stands in this position with the Father. This is the role that he takes for all of us as believers. And I think that's something that we can have great hope in. That as we believe on him, that as we trust him, and as we follow him, we know that Jesus Christ is our advocate. That he is there with the Father, speaking on our behalf. And yet, there's a difference between our concept of a defense attorney who is pleading the innocence of his client and the role that Jesus has as advocate. Our defense attorneys typically will do whatever it takes to argue that their client is not guilty, right? I mean, if you've ever watched Matlock or Perry Mason or any of those court shows, you know that that's what they do. And they find that, like, minor little detail. Well, Jesus acts slightly differently. So the the defense attorney is going to say, my client is not guilty. Here's the deal. Jesus admits that you and I are guilty. He says to the father, yeah, they're guilty. In my case, he'd say, yep, father, Mitch is guilty of that sin. And my enemy, the devil, my accuser, would be cheering him on. Like, yeah, he's totally guilty. This is awesome that he's admitting this and that, you know what? He deserves the penalty that's going to come. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, Father, Mitch is guilty of his sin, but he belongs to me. I've paid the price for his sin. I've paid the price for all of them. And I took the wrath and the punishment that is required by this court, which he deserves. And here's the beauty of it all. That the Father, in hearing that, as Jesus is advocating on my behalf, he says, all right, Mitch is guilty as charged, but the penalty has already been paid. He, it has been satisfied. There is nothing more that is required because Jesus has already paid the price. Jesus doesn't argue that we're innocent. He doesn't try to excuse the acts of our sin. Rather, he admits the reality of our sin before the Father and advocates that the penalty required for our sin has already been met. Praise the Lord. Amen? For the believer, this is a huge deal. Because remember, God is perfect. He is holy and pure and righteous. 
he is light and that in him there is no darkness at all. So with respect to our sin, he can't just forgive our sin simply by forgiving them. Like, I forgive you. All is good. Let's move on. His holy and just nature make it impossible for him to deal with sin just by simply forgiving. He can't just flick it away. Right? He can't just like sweep it away and it's just gone. Rather, something has to be done about sin because God is holy and in him there is no darkness at all. So Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that's why in the Old Testament pre-Christ system, animal sacrifices were required. The blood sacrifice was required to forgive the people of their sins. But because at that time the sacrifices were animals, the sacrifices had to be offered up routinely. It wasn't sufficient for a lamb or a ram or a goat to take all of the sins that I've committed on itself and and it would forever cleanse me. No, they had to do that on a routine basis to continually offer up sacrifices for their sins. But Jesus, when he came, he was our perfect sacrifice once and for all. His blood that was shed made the way for all of our sins to be forgiven, right? And here's why Jesus is our perfect sacrifice. In these verses, John calls him Jesus Christ the righteous. Remember, Jesus, the man, was the divine son of God. He was the Christ who came to earth in the flesh. He dwelt among us. He was fully God and fully man while he was on earth. And as such, he's sympathetic to the things that we go through. He understands what it is to be human. He understands that we are weak at times, that we get sick. He understands what it's like to be tired or sore or hungry. And he has seen firsthand that sometimes we're ignorant, that we don't always understand what's going on or why we do what we do. He experienced temptation even, yet, unlike us, he did not sin. And so as he walked this earth and experienced what we experienced, he did so without sinning. And he was perfect and holy, just like his Father in heaven. And John goes on to say that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. So, turn to your neighbor and say, propitiation. Now, beyond just now sounding super intelligent, for some of you, it's probably good that you had masks on, because your neighbor might have gotten sprayed as you said that word. Right? Anyway, propitiation is not a very common word, right? Most of us have not heard that word in our work environments or in school or as we're in, you know, different clubs around town. Um, Propitiation generally represents an act that someone does in order to receive favor from someone else. That's kind of where the whole concept came in. And in the ancient pagan religions, someone would give an offering with the hope that they could appease one of the gods. Like, so-and-so is angry with me, so if I offer a sacrifice, maybe they won't be upset with me anymore, and that I'll have some favor in my life. Well, that was that idea. And they would offer this gift in order to incur their favor. 
It was an act that was initiated by a person so that they could be spared the God's anger. Well, that's not how it works here in that sense. With Jesus as the propitiation for our sins, we see an entirely different scenario. Here, God is the one who initiates the sacrifice. God is the one who initiates this act of propitiation, and it's his love for us that's the origin that sets all of these things in motion. Think of John 3.16 for a moment. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He knew that he couldn't just sweep our sins under the rug, that he couldn't just sweep them away and, and let them be done, that a penalty would be required for our sin. And in order for this penalty to be satisfied, a propitiation, a perfect sacrificial act would need to occur. So God took the extreme measure of sending his son as our sacrifice so that we would be able to stand in the presence of his holiness and righteousness. Jesus would need to be our propitiation so that we could have ongoing fellowship with the Father. He became our propitiation, willingly presenting himself as the gift which turns away God's wrath against our sin. And it's not just for our sins alone. It's not just for those of you who attend Portview. It is for the sins of the whole world. That's the beauty. That it is sufficient enough for the sins of the whole world. It is available for every single person, no matter what he or she has done. But here's the deal. It is only effective for those who believe on Jesus. That propitiation only really takes shape and form when we begin to say, I'm identifying with Christ and I'm going to follow in his ways. For those who believe on Jesus, the Son of God, trusting him with their lives and following in his ways. It is sufficient for everyone, but we need to make that decision that we are going to follow in his ways. And then, with that, he is our propitiation and he becomes our advocate. He died as the righteous, sinless propitiation for our sins, and this qualifies him then for the position as our righteous advocate. He now sits with his father and speaks on our behalf. He essentially says, Father, I admit that they are guilty of their sin, but it is right and it is just for you to forgive the sins of these people, for I have already borne their sins and taken the punishment for them. He pleads our cause against our accuser, the one who would want to see us destroyed, and he pleads with the Father who himself loves and desires the best for his children. He continually applies his death to our sins, day after day after day. And this enables us to then have that ongoing fellowship with the Father. So, remember, as we close today, that John's direct appeal is that we do not sin. That is the best path for us, that we do not engage in it, we do not practice it, we avoid it at all cost. That we should strive constantly to not sin. But if we do sin, we do have a certainty that we can know as believers. That we do have an advocate. One who is holy and righteous and is standing with the Father on our behalf. 
And we can turn to him. We can confess our sins to him. And he in turn speaks with the father for us. Saying that the punishment required for our sins has been satisfied. Because he advocates for us. We can be certain, no matter what, that we can have continued fellowship with the father. That that strong, stable connection that John is hoping for us. We can have that with him. And we can continue without hindrance or interruption. Would you stand with me this morning? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today as people who are humbled and blessed in your presence. Each one of us is guilty of sin. And we each deserve the penalty of our sin. We recognize that and we admit that to you. Yet, because of your great love for us, you have made a way for us to be reunited with you. And you invite us to believe in your Son and to walk with him in the light. And we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you have made your Son, Jesus, to be our advocate. That he is the righteous one. That he is the one who was the propitiation for our sins, that perfect sacrifice that could cleanse us then of all of our sin. That he is the one who knows us, he sympathizes with our weaknesses. And so Lord, we thank you that you allow us to confess our sins and have an ongoing connection with you because of that. We thank you that we can have continued relationship with you That even if we stumble and sin, your provision in Jesus' death on the cross continues to be applied to our sin. So Lord, help us. Help us to take sin seriously going forward. Help us to work continually to not sin. And it's not that we are trying to earn anything with you. It's not trying to prove ourselves to you. But rather, we want to live in this way so that we can show our love for you and that we want to maintain that connection with you. So Lord, may we glorify you in all that we do. We love you, Lord. Praise your name, Lord. We thank you. And Lord, we just pray that you would just guide us all that we do. Help us again, Lord. Help us to be strong. Even in the the swirl of the world and the things that go on around us, help us not to sin. Help us to walk in the light as you are in the light. Thank you, Lord. We serve a good God, amen. Well, in a few moments, we're going to open up the altar. And if you would like to pray or have uh, or be prayed with, uh, I'm here and I will be happy to do that. Um, But before we dismiss, let me just pray this benediction over you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now go in the grace of the Lord Jesus. Have a wonderful week.